Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And got a lot of stuff to do today, as always. Um, this particular uh, program, we are going to do the second half of our two-part series on the person of Jesus. And we're going to look at a venerable and quite timely devotion uh, in the Holy Church. I think it's uh, very, very efficacious for our own day. And I've discovered some interesting things about it that I want to share with you, and that is devotion to our Lord's holy face. Also, if time permits, we're going to answer the question, why leave the church? Because <laughs> so many people have. But uh, to begin, the, uh, this week started with the, in the, the liturgy of the extraordinary form uh, by the celebration of the fifth Sunday after Easter. And then tomorrow, this uh, Thursday, we are going to celebrate the Feast of the Ascension. And I would remind you that this is a holy day of obligation in most dioceses, so you want to make sure that, uh, you know, unless your bishop has moved the celebration to the, you know, next Sunday or whatever, that you really want to get yourself to Mass on Thursday. Also, naturally, if you are um, celebrating the Mass in the extraordinary form, that follows the old calendar, and it is a holy day of obligation. So, uh, with that, I'm going to start off with the Holy Gospel for the fifth Sunday after Easter, which is taken from John 16, verses 23 through 30. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, Amen, amen, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto you have not asked anything in my name. Asking you shall receive, that your joy may be full." These things I have spoken to you in Proverbs. The hour cometh when I will no more speak to you in Proverbs, but will show you plainly of the Father. In that day you shall ask in my name. And I say not to you that I will ask the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and I go to the Father. His disciples say to him, Behold, now thou speakest plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we know that thou knowest all things, and thou needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou comest forth from God. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. So Jesus communicates to us that God desires that we pray to him and pray to him directly. And it's to remind us, of course, that all good things come from God, uh, that really without him we have nothing, and that uh, there are many things that God desires to give us, but only if we ask for them. That's number two, and number, uh, or number one rather, number two, uh, to remind us uh, that we may confide in God and uh, try to make ourselves worthy of his divine grace through prayer, uh, through thoughts that are pleasing to him, and by both valuing more and making better use of the graces that we receive through prayer and, and the sacraments. Now, some people will point to this verse. Um, Jesus says, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it you. And they say, but why then are so many of my prayers uh, going unanswered? Why are my prayers not heard? And, you know, the standard answer is that um, we often ask for things that would be more detrimental to us than profitable. 
right? Because we can't see the big picture and God can. But they would say, yeah, but it says, ask anything in my name and he will give it you. And I think the confusion stems from what it means to ask something in Jesus' name. When Jesus says, ask the Father in my name, he's talking about uh, his authority. He says, you know, he's saying, anything that you ask God that's according to my will, he will give you. That you can go to God in my name. And he will, and those prayers will be answered. Because, of course, the will of Christ is identical to the will of the Father. His divine will is, is identical to that of the Father. So, uh, Scripture tells us we should pray all the time. We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. Uh, but especially we should have a regimen of prayer, you know, to pray morning and evening and, and before bedtime and so forth. Um, obviously, we want to pray in times of temptation or when we are about to receive the sacraments. You know, you should always uh, say a prayer in preparation uh, to receive Holy Communion. Anytime you're going to do anything important, you're going to undertake some, some new venture, you want to pray for it. And, of course, at the hour of death. Now, the Lord's Prayer is considered the best of all prayers. It's the perfect prayer. It's the one that Jesus gave, himself gave to us when the apostles asked, the disciples asked, teach us how to pray. And he said, pray in this wise, pray like this. Um, but, you know, even though we say it a hundred times, you can recite the Our Father over and over, but it's not going to produce those beneficial effects if you are, you know, repeating it thoughtlessly without being aware of its meaning and its purpose. And so traditionally on this Sunday, um, you know, Catholic pastors would uh, give the a little catechesis on the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to do that uh, quickly. Lord's Prayer begins with the words, Our Father, right? This is, we're, we're speaking directly to, to God the Father. And it encourages us to a childlike confidence in God as a Father who loves us all and who is always ready to help. We say, uh, who art in heaven. Somebody said, why do, why do we say who art in heaven when God is everywhere? I mean, that's the teaching of the church, that he is omnipresent. Well, it's to admonish us to lift up our hearts to heaven, which is our true home and where God has set up the throne of his kingdom. Um, And then we have the seven petitions, beginning with, hallowed be thy name. So we pray that God would be known and loved by all men, and that his name would be glorified um, in the liturgy, of course, and and especially through our own good Christian lives. Uh, Next, we ask thy kingdom come. So we're praying God to enter and to rule uh, in our world, in our hearts, especially by his grace, and to spread his church all throughout the whole world, okay? Uh, and, and after our death, of course, to award us eternal happiness. Uh, the third petition, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is an offering. We're offering ourselves entirely to God and declaring ourselves ready to uh, subject uh, ourselves, you know, to, to the dispositions of the holy will. Uh, as are the angels in heaven. And we pray for him, of course, for the grace to do this. In the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. We're asking for all the things that we need, both of body and soul. Of body, like, you know, food and clothing and shelter. And of the soul, like the divine words and grace and so on. And especially the panum nostrum supersubstantialum, or the our, our supersubstantial bread, which is the way Matthew renders this petition of the Our Father in his gospel, the supersubstantial bread, namely our Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Blessed Sacrament. 
The fifth petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. So we're praying to God for forgiveness, but with this caveat that that he forgive us uh, only so far as we forgive those that injure us. And so we have to remember that we're not going to obtain forgiveness from God so long as we are harboring hatred in our heart for others. The sixth petition is lead us not into temptation. This has caused a bit of a kerfuffle at uh, even some pretty high uh, positions in the church for reasons that escape me, because clearly um, the church has taught for many, many years, not that God tempts us, but rather that uh, it is for us to acknowledge our frailty, to ask God to remove temptations from us, or, or if he permit us to fall into um, the, you know, those temptations offered by the world and the flesh and the devil, that he would give us the grace not to consent to them but rather by combating and overcoming them to gain the merit and the crown of justice. And in the seventh petition, but deliver us from evil, we pray God to preserve us from sin and the occasions of sin and evil death, uh, eternity in hell, and temporal evil, all temporal evils, so far as may be for the salvation of our souls. Now, I want to move on to the um, ascension and uh, we only got a couple minutes left in this first segment, so I'm, gonna, um, I'm not going to read the epistle for the um, Feast of the Ascension, which is from Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. It's rather long. I'll sum up. Um, it records our Lord's ascension into heaven, so that's pretty obviously important for the Feast of the Ascension. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus remained with his disciples to convince them of the truth of his resurrection, that he really had risen from the dead, to teach them about the kingdom, which is to say, uh, especially about his church on earth, and their vocation as apostles. And um, as they were still thinking about an earthly kingdom um, to be established by Christ, he referred them to the instruction of the Holy Ghost. Right? He says, um, They asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or moments which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive the power of the Holy Ghost coming upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost part of the earth. This is the coming of the Holy Ghost, which we will celebrate a week from Sunday on Pentecost. And this also is what empowers us to pray, as our Lord said, in my name, uh, according to his will. And, you know, that at, after he said these words, he ascended into heaven from whence he will come again as our judge. And both uh, Ascension Thursday and Pentecost are times to rejoice over the instructions that our Lord uh, has given us and have been preserved and communicated to us through the tradition of the Catholic Church, most especially that he's taken possession of the glory gained by his passion and death. This is the good news, uh, that Christ rose again and that he ascended into heaven, where he is now an intercessor for you and for me, and where he premieres, prepares a mansion for you, and that this, that heaven, is now your true home. And this gives meaning and purpose to life. It makes, life's, uh, it makes of life a journey to the Father's kingdom, which is your home. And so, uh, as we hope and suffer and love and pray our way through these very dark days, Ascension Thursday reminds us to look up to heaven, where Christ is, and please God, we too shall be. And that's no nonsense. Okay, coming back, we'll talk about the person of Christ when we return with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after these messages. Stay with us.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Last week, we started our discussion on the person of Jesus Christ. And um, we talked about Jesus being pre-announced, as Bishop Sheen likes to say, how he was the only religious leader whose coming was foretold. And that um, the chief teaching about uh, Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church is that he is both human and divine, that he is the God-man. Um, our Lord Jesus Christ is true God and true man. So as God, he's equal to the Father and to the Holy Ghost, infinite, almighty, eternal. And as man, he has a body and soul like ours. So Jesus Christ then has two natures that cannot be separated, but which are distinct, the human and the divine. And, uh, but he's only one person, that divine person. So Jesus Christ is not a human person, but a divine person. Okay. But he's only one person, right? Uh, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And throughout the Holy Gospel, we read about our Lord Jesus Christ precisely as one person. Eating, uh, sleeping, talking, uh, suffering, dying as one person. And so I guess the first thing we need to do is define what that is. What is a person? Well, the church defines a person as a being that is intelligent and free and therefore responsible for his actions, which is to say that we attribute to a person whatever uh, good or evil he does in the use of his human powers because he uh, or she owns and controls those powers. So you are a human person, I am a human person, and as a human person, everything I do is done by a human person. But our Lord Jesus is a divine person since he's God. And so whatever Jesus did while he was on earth was of an infinite dignity because it was the work of a divine person. Jesus is our Lord. He's God. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity, true God, and from eternity, and in time, he became true man. And we call him our Lord because as God, he is. He's Lord and Master of all. And as our Savior, he redeemed us by his blood. He is, therefore, since he's God, he is our creator, our redeemer our lawgiver, our teacher, um, our judge, all those things we mean when we say our Lord. Uh, St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to whom be honor and everlasting dominion. Amen. So there's only one person, the divine person in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not a human person. Everything in him has, uh, even as man, therefore, is divine and worthy of adoration. We're going to talk later in the program about devotion to the holy face. And so we see, because Jesus is a divine person, when we adore the sacred heart, when we adore the holy face of Christ, when we adore the precious blood, we're not simply adoring uh, uh, flesh and blood but flesh that's united to the divinity. And in Christ, the human and the divine are inseparable. So Jesus, then, is one person, 
but he is one person with two natures, the nature of God and the nature of man. So again, a, a definition is in order. What is a nature? A nature is a substance that is complete in itself and uh, as a source of activity. It differs from person in that while person determines what an individual is, nature determines what an individual can do. So in Jesus Christ, our Lord, there's two natures, the divine nature and his human nature. Therefore, he could and did act as God, and he could and did act as man, while all the time he was the Son of God. So, because of his divine nature, Christ is truly God. Because of his human nature, Christ is truly man. In his divine nature, he's the second person of the Blessed Trinity, God the Son, the eternal Word existing from, from, from all eternity. And he took his human nature in time from a human mother. It was to the Blessed Virgin Mary that the Archangel Gabriel announced the words, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Most High. That's Luke one thirty-two. Therefore, Jesus Christ is both God and man. He has both divine powers, and he also has human powers. He has knowledge. He can will. He can act as God and as man. For example, uh, with his human nature, our Lord worked and ate, pardon me, and spoke and, and, and preached. He felt pain and hunger, uh, heat and cold, right? But it was his divine nature that enabled him to be transfigured, to walk on the water, to perform miracles, to raise the dead. Uh, these two natures were united in the one divine person, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And they were and are intimately united, but while remaining distinct. So neither was absorbed by the other. And, uh, and the old example is when you take iron and gold and you weld them into a solid mass, they continue to retain their individual properties, distinct from one another. So the union of the divine and human natures in Christ uh, is called the hypostatic union. That's, that's the term that was hammered out at uh, the Council of Ephesus. Christ is true God and true man, and this is why we call him God-man. Beings obtain their nature from their origin. For this reason, a child has a human nature from its human parents. Jesus Christ, second person of the Blessed Trinity, has his origin from God the Father, hence he has a divine nature. Moreover, as man, he was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and thus his human nature. That is why Christ is often referred to, or often referred to himself, um, indiscriminately, uh, kind of interchangeably, as Son of God and Son of Man. Uh, both of which were also prophetic titles. Now, as a consequence of these two natures, and this is, this is where it gets interesting, because he has two natures, because he's truly God and truly man, that means he also has two wills, a divine will and a human will. And <clears throat> we see that so clearly, and this makes perfect sense of his prayer to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his agony, 
in the Garden of Olives before his passion, you know, he calls out to the Father, if it be thy will, let this chalice pass from me. Yet, not my will, but thine be done. And so he's making a reference to his human will uh, as distinct from the divine will, which, of course, is identical to the Father's. If it be, you know, if it be thy will, not my will, but thine be done, it's his human will as opposed to the divine will. In his sacred humanity, Jesus Christ um, sweat blood when he took upon himself the sins of the whole world. Now, what does that, so you can see where he would maybe be reticent, <laughs> you know, and, and a, a good many spiritual writers say that that was the greatest pain that he, that he uh, endured was the pain of sinfulness because he is in fact God, he is divine. Yet in his human nature, he had to take upon himself the sins of the whole world. That is why our Lord's name, Jesus, means Redeemer or Savior. He's called Jesus because he came to uh, save men from sin and to open the doors of heaven. So before the birth of our Lord, an angel appeared to St. Joseph and, uh, and reiterated you know, what, he, what he told Mary at the what Gabriel, we don't know if it was the angel Gabriel that appeared in his dream, but reiterated what was said to Mary at the Annunciation. He told Joseph, thou shalt call his name Jesus. That's Matthew 121. Um, and after eight days were accomplished that the child should be circumcised, his name was called Jesus. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall um, save his people from their sins. So we should say the name of our Lord with great reverence and bow our heads every time we say it. That used to be standard operating procedure in the, in the training of priests, especially, that during the Holy Mass, whenever they say the holy name of Jesus, they would bow their head, whether they were saying it, you know, within the, the prayer or reading the gospel or, um, uh, you know, uh, talking about it, our Lord in a homily, that they would bow their heads at the name of Jesus. Uh, and that's following what St. Paul says in Philippians, that, that um, you know, there is no other name under which men are to be saved, and in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And uh, also the, the symbol IHS that you see in, in, in churches and stuff, I've seen people offering various explanations of what its initials for, but it's actually the first three letters of the name of Jesus in Greek. All right, so he's Jesus, that's his given name. We also refer to him as Christ or the Christ, which means the anointed one. Christ is a Greek word. It's essentially analogous to uh, Messiah or Messiah. In the old law, it was the custom to anoint with oil prophets, priests, and kings. And as we know, of course, our Lord is the greatest of all the prophets. He's the high priest who offers himself for all mankind. He's the king of angels and of men. He's the king of kings and the lords of lords. And therefore, it is fitting that we call him Christ because he truly is the Anointed One, capital T, capital A, capital O. Uh, and we are called Christians because we are disciples of Christ, because we believe in his teachings, because we obey his commandments, because we are uh, uh, made part of his family uh, through the sacraments. So it is in Antioch, the scriptures tell us, that the first um, time the uh, followers of Christ were called Christians. And it's interesting to note that they were called Christians. They themselves, you know, they, they were just members of the church, the community. 
And it was one church, you know, it might be the church at Antioch or the church at, at Philippi or the church at Corinth, but it was the church. And then we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, that um, the church w- uh, spread throughout all of Judea. It says, the church throughout all Judea, Samaria, etc., was at peace. The church throughout all, Ecclesia Catholos, the Catholic Church, that's where that comes from, is right from um, the words of Holy Scripture. And um, unfortunately, those, uh, you know, those who deny Christ obviously are not Christians, especially those who would deny his divinity. And unfortunately, that means that there's any number of people these days who call themselves Christians who are, in fact, Christian in name only. Now, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ was announced, as we've talked so often on this program, through many, many types and figures and which are, you know, it's kind of like what a photograph is to the reality of a person, which is a segue into our next topic, which is the holy face of Jesus. Going to talk about that and lots more when we come back with more No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio right after these messages. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I have been reading a book the last few days uh, called The Templars and the Shroud of Christ, uh, a priceless relic in the dawn of the Christian era and the men who swore to protect it. Uh, the book is written by Barbara Frawle, who uh, Dr. Frawle is a uh, historian at the Vatican Secret Archives, and uh, she is an expert in the Crusades and specifically the Knights Templar, and the author of many books, and she is actually the, disco- the scholar who discovered, quite by chance, um, uh, right after the turn of the century, what has become known as the Chinon parchment, which actually uh, exonerates the Templars. It shows that they were absolved of the false charges of heresy and idol worship and so forth that had been brought against them by Philip the Fair of France. You know, it's nice to... Something historians had always known, but she was the one who actually just recently uh, discovered the smoking gun. And that was one of those things that the Templars were accused of worshiping an idol, um, a, a figure of a man's head, which it turns out was in fact the Shroud of Turin folded up in a reliquary where um, only the face uh, of the image was visible. And uh, that, because of that and reading this, it got me um, started investigating devotion to the holy face of Jesus, which of course, like everything, turns out to be related to St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter by far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. The uh, words of St. Bernard express the fulfillment of a longing that goes all the way back to the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 79, verse 4, Convert us, O God, and show us thy face, and we shall be saved. Uh, in John's Gospel, we read uh, John fourteen eight and 9, Philip saith to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus saith to him, Have I been so long a time with you, and you have not known me? Philip, he that seeth me, seeth the Father also. So devotion to the Holy Face goes all the way back to the earthly ministry of Christ, as described in sacred scripture. And devotion to his Holy Face is right and just for a Catholic Christian, because we know, just as we discussed in the very last segment, that... um, There is only one person 
in the God-man Jesus Christ. And so when we adore his sacred heart or his precious blood or his holy face, we're not worshiping uh, an idol or, or, you know, something mere human flesh and blood, but the, you know, the God-man, the, that flesh and blood united to the divinity because in Christ the divine and the human are inseparable. So devotion to the holy face is naturally linked to the sixth station of the cross where, uh, you know, the sixth station is Jesus meets Veronica. And, you know, tradition tells us, and this goes back to, I mean, the, the early days in the Holy Land, St. Francis brought the devotion back with him from his trip to the Holy Land. Um, you know, he himself made the way of the cross and then, you know, brought it back to, uh, because pilgrims couldn't go to the Holy Land because of the, uh, um, all of the strife there. He brought the devotion back with him. That's why we have the, the stations in the churches so that we can, in spirit, walk the Via Dolorosa. And that sixth station, um, tradition tells us, a woman stepped out of the crowd during uh, Christ carrying the cross, and uh, she had a veil with which she wiped his adorable face. And she was rewarded with an image of the holy face imprinted on the cloth, which became one of the venerable relics of Christendom. Um, it actually was passed down uh, ultimately to the popes, um, after St. Clement, I think, and all the way down to today. I mean, it's still part of the, uh, the Vatican's collection of priceless art and relics. And I've seen it. It's called the Mandelion of Edessa. Uh, it's believed to be Veronica's Veil. And, and I've seen it, and it's quite, uh, quite striking. Um, and there are other clauses that you know, would maybe make a claim to being the actual Veil of Veronica. But uh, uh, the, the point is that, um, that it is this, you know, very devotion to the holy face and that image on the Veronica's veil, also known as the Mandilian, which is Greek for a hand towel, essentially. Um, it also might be interesting to note that Veronica actually means true icon. And so it is likely that what began as a description of the relic became associated, you know, associated so associated with this woman that we call her Veronica. But Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, in her visions of the dolorous passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, reveals to us that her true name was Seraphia. All right, so just a little, uh, a little Veronica Veil tribute, uh, trivia for you. So devotion to the Holy Face really began in earnest in the Middle Ages with St. Bernard and um, St. Gertrude the Great, St. Matilda, who were both uh, actually very influenced by Bernard's writings, St. Bonaventure later, uh, became popular in the modern era through devotion of St. Therese the Little Flower and, and her parents. And, uh, you know, they, they were following the devotion uh, of the French visionary, a French Carmelite named Sister uh, Marie of St. Peter, uh, or Marie de Saint-Pierre. The devotion was a favorite also of Pope Blessed Pius IX, who wrote a number of prayers um, in honor of the holy face of Jesus. And what's, what makes it timely, I think, for today is that it's a devotion that uh, focuses on making reparation, making reparation to the holy face of Jesus of the Vale of Veronica for sins involving uh, the first three commandments of God. So uh, sins of blasphemy, profaning Sundays and holy days and, uh, um, and breaking vows, right? Um, and the, the, let's see, uh, sins against the Catholic faith. So blasphemy uh, is a sin against the second commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So that would include 
you know, the, just the, the regular coarse blasphemies of uh, taking our Lord's name in vain, or speaking disrespectfully about holy things, or breaking vows, perjury and whatnot, and uh, the doctrinal blasphemy of what was at the time called a free thinker. So we're talking atheists, uh, uh, hedonists, modernists, Freemasons, that kind of thing. Blasphemy. Uh, violation or profanation of Sundays and holy days, right? That's a sin against the third commandment. See thou, or remember thou, keep holy the Lord's day, which includes, of course, missing mass on Sundays of holy days through your own fault um, or performing undue servile work on Sunday, that kind of thing. And then uh, communism. Interesting is another sin against the second commandment, which includes crimes committed by uh, secret societies against the true church of Christ. In March 1847, remember, communism goes back before, you know, the, uh, the, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia and all that stuff. It goes back to uh, the middle of the 19th century. And in March of 1847, our Lord specifically identified the communists by name as his enemies. According to the revelations of the holy face of Jesus by John Vernari, and he's quoting um, Abbe Janvier's life of um, Sister Marie of Saint-Pierre that was written back in 1884. And I quote, Sister Saint-Pierre writes, he has commanded me to make war on the communists, telling me they are the enemies of the church and of her Christ. And this is at a time when communism was just being posited as a, a political philosophy. All right, and then sins against the Catholic faith. And those would be sins against the first commandment. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. And so that would include um, indifferentism, right, which is holding false religions as uh, equal to the true one, um, or, you know, saying differences uh, of creed are unimportant. That's indifferentism. Taking part in non-Catholic worship, heresy, which is defying one or more doctrines of the faith, apostasy, which is falling away from the faith altogether, and then the sins of idolatry and superstition, um, spiritualism, various occult practice, practices, tempting God, sacrilege, all those, of course, would be violations of that commandment. And so um, our Lord, uh, or Our Lady actually also appeared to Sister Marie uh, Saint-Pierre and said that our Lord desires this um, devotion to his holy face in reparation for these sins. And like the 15 promises of Our Lady um, that were given to Blessed Alain de la Roche for those who recite the rosary, there are likewise promises of Our Lord attached to devotion to the holy face. Nine of them. Uh, they were collated in the 1880s by the original propagators of the devotion. And the first two are promises given to St. Gertrude and St. Mechtilde, respectively. And then the remaining seven given by our Lord to Sister Marie uh, de Saint-Pierre. Number one, they shall receive in themselves by the impression of my humanity, right, the image of the face, a bright irradiation of my divinity, and shall be so illuminated in it in their inmost souls that by their likeness to my face they shall shine more than any others in eternal life. That was St. Gertrude. Uh, St. Mactilde asked our Lord, this is number two, if those who celebrate the memory of his holy face should never be deprived of his amiable company. And our Lord replied, not one of them shall be separated from me. And number three, this is the beginning of the uh, um, promises given to Sister Marie uh, de Saint-Pierre. Our Lord has promised me that he will imprint his divine likeness on the souls of those who honor his most holy countenance. This adorable face is, as it were, the seal of the divinity, 
which has the virtue of reproducing the likeness of God in the souls that are applied to it. Number four, our Lord said, by my holy face, you shall work miracles. Number five, by my holy face, you will obtain the conversion of many sinners. Nothing that you ask in making this offering will be refused to you if you knew how pleasing the sight of my face is to my Father. Number six, as in an earthly kingdom, you can procure all you wish with a coin marked with the prince's effigy. So in the kingdom of heaven, you may obtain all you desire with a precious coin of my holy humanity, which is my adorable countenance. Number seven, all those who honor my holy face in a spirit of reparation will by so doing perform the office of the pious Veronica. Right, so he will consider our devotion as being like that courageous woman who stepped to wipe the blood from his eyes when he was uh, making the way to Calvary. Number eight, according to the care you take in making reparation to my face disfigured by blasphemies, so will I take care of yours, which has been disfigured by sin. I will reprint therein my, or therein my image and render it as beautiful as it was on leaving the baptismal font. Wow, that's a beautiful promise. And number nine, Sister Marie de Saint-Pierre said, Our Lord has promised me that all those who defend his cause in this work of reparation, by words, by prayers, or in writing, he will defend before his Father. At their death, he will purify their souls by effacing all the blots of sin and will restore to them their primitive beauty. Now that's the first of the uh, devotions to the Holy Face. The second, when we return, with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about devotion to the holy face of Jesus. I mentioned at the top of the last segment that uh, I'm reading this book, The Templars and the Shroud of Christ by Dr. Barbara Frawley. And in the last segment, I described uh, in some detail uh, devotion to the holy face of Jesus of the Veil of Veronica, as it is known. But there is another devotion, similar but distinct, and that is devotion to the holy face of Jesus of the Shroud of Turin. And I think for many years, those two devotions were, um, they were conflated, even confused uh, as being the same. But um, while they are closely related, they are certainly two distinct devotions given to the world by our Lord himself. And, uh, you know, in two different centuries, right, the Veronica Vale devotion in the 19th century and the Shadow Turin in the 20th century. Two different messengers. We have Sister Marie de Saint-Pierre for the Veronica's Vale and Mother Maria Pierina uh, for the Shroud of Turin. Two different countries, uh, France for Veronica's Vale, Italy for the Shroud of Turin devotion. And while both are uh, introduced, were introduced in order to make reparation, they have that in common. Um, it is for two different and distinct types of sins. Now, we already talked about, uh, about the repertory intentions for the Holy Face of Veronica's Veil devotion, and we will discuss the repertory intentions for the Holy Face of the Shroud of Turin in just a moment. But the, the devotion utilized two different sets of prayers and means of making reparation on two different days of the week. Uh, the Veronica Veil was uh, for Sundays and Holy Days, and uh, Tuesdays for the Shroud of Turin devotion. And finally, each has two different sets of promises 
given by heaven for performing those two different devotions. Now, the important similarity between the devotions, as I've already mentioned, is that they are both requests for making reparation by honoring the holy face of Jesus. But there are also two different images of his holy face. The image of the veil of Veronica was imprinted while our Lord was yet alive during his passion, but when he was yet alive, whereas the image of the Shroud of Turin was obtained after his death. Some would suggest possibly even at the moment of the resurrection, He's passing from death, you know, uh, and returning to life. Naturally, a faithful Catholic is not going to see, um, you know, is going to see that these devotions are complementary, uh, complementary, and not see any contradiction or opposition between them. Uh, so the messenger chosen by God to receive the devotion of the holy face of Jesus of the Shroud of Turin was Mother Maria Piorina di Michelli, a religious sister in the convent of the Immaculate Conception in Rome. And this was back in the um, early part of the 20th century. In fact, on the first Friday of Lent in the year 1936, so in between the world wars and shortly before the rise of Hitler, while praying in the chapel of the convent, Jesus appeared to her, his face covered in blood, and with profound sadness he said to her, I desire that my face, which reflects the deep anguish of my soul and the sorrow and love of my heart, be more honored. He who contemplates me consoles me. And our Lord appeared to her repeatedly with this same request. And then on Tuesday of Passion Week, that same year, 1936, Jesus told her, Each time my face is contemplated, I will pour my love into hearts, and through my holy face, many souls will be saved. Right? Salvation of souls. That's the name of the game. In 1938, while playing, praying in the chapel, the Immaculate Virgin appeared to Sister Pierina, holding a scapular made of two pieces of white flannel joined by a cord. On one side was the image of the Holy Face with the words, Illumina Domine Vultum Tuum Super Nos. Uh, Let thy face shine upon us, O Lord, surrounding the image. And on the other side was an image of the Sacred Host, surrounded by rays of light with the words, Mane Nobiscum Domine. Stay with us, O Lord, surrounding the image. Now, the Blessed Virgin told Sister Piorina this scapular, and then later the Blessed Virgin told Mother Maria that a medal could be used instead. Uh, this scapular or medal is a weapon of defense, a shield of strength, a pledge of love and mercy which Jesus wishes to give to the world in these times of sensuality and hatred against God and the Church. Diabolic snares are being, laired, being laid to tear the faith from men's hearts. And evil spreads. True apostles are few. A divine remedy is necessary. And this remedy is the holy face of Jesus. All those who shall wear the scapular or medal like this and will make, if possible, a visit to the Blessed Sacrament every Tuesday in reparation for the outrages that the holy face my son received during his passion and which he receives daily in the Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist will, and here are the promises, First, be strengthened in the faith. Can't imagine anything more important than that right now. Number two, be prompt to defend the faith. You know, we're at a time when, as Our Lady of Good Success prophesied 400 years ago, that many who should be defending the faith are falling silent. But those who are devoted to the holy faith will be prompt to defend the faith. Number three, they will overcome all difficulties, internal and external. 
And those difficulties are many and manifest in the world right now. And finally, number four, be granted a peaceful and holy death under the loving gaze of my divine son, which of course is the meaning and purpose of life is to leave this life and then enter into eternal life with God. So devotion to the holy face of um, the Shroud of Turin, the face of Jesus of the Shroud of Turin, is simple. You pray five glory bees every day to console our Lord and to make reparation for the outrages which his holy face received during his passion and which he continues to receive every day in the Blessed Sacrament. You should wear the Shroud Medal, which you can get online or at a Catholic gift shop. I... uh, just recently got one. I can see it. You can't see it, I'm sure, on the picture here, but this is the, the medal that was described by Our Lady with the shroud image on the, on the face and on the reverse side, uh, an image of the host and with those words on it. Uh, and then, if possible, on Tuesdays, make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. And it's interesting, she's talking about making reparation to the holy face of Jesus for what he suffered in his passion and what he continues to, dis- to, to suffer today in the Blessed Sacrament. And of course, these are outrages that, that are spoken of uh, uh, on the, the programs on this channel uh, with some regularity. You know, the, the indifference to our Lord, the sacrilegious communions, um, the, the dangers associated with uh, communion in the hand. You know, Our, our Lady said that, that, um, that the enemies of Christ would steal hosts in order to desecrate them, and we know that that does happen. And I, again, 400 years ago, I don't know how exactly you would have managed that. Most people didn't receive communion all that regularly, and when they did, it was on the tongue. You know, it was only the, really the introduction of communion in the hand that made it possible for, um, you know, any kind of uh, volume in regard to the, the stealing of consecrated hosts for the purpose of their desecration. But it happens with too much regularity, and also um, just the fact that most parishes that offer communion in the hand, which is most parishes, uh, they don't bother to use the paten. So there are particles that, uh, that are lost because people aren't careful. And as a result, as Our Lady said 400 years ago, she, see, she said that, that my Lord, uh, that my divine son will be trampled upon by irreverent feet. And so there, there's a whole lot of this stuff. And then, of course, the, the, the politicization, politicization of the Eucharist with uh, so-called Catholic politicians who clearly and publicly deny the uh, teachings of the Catholic Church, who then uh, insist upon receiving communion as though they were Catholics in good standing. So many, many outrages uh, to make reparation for uh, in regard to our Lord's holy face. And then John Venari, uh, the late John Venari, wrote a booklet, um, probably one of the last ones that he wrote. It was shortly after the, um, probably in 2015, I guess, that's when they had the Synod on the Family and Morris Letitia and all that happened. But he wrote a booklet called The Revelations of the Holy Face of Jesus. And in it, he said, We can safely say that devotion to the Holy Face has a special importance for our time, primarily for this reason. Heaven told us through Sister Marie de Saint-Pierre, right? That's the Holy Face of Veronica, Holy Face of Jesus and Veronica's veil. Uh, Marie Saint-Pierre said that the Holy Face of Jesus is a symbol of the Catholic religion, right? If the Church is the body of Christ... His face is a symbol of our religion. She says, yet the image of his face that he gave us for our time is not one that is beautiful, healthy, and ravishing, but a face that is beaten, suffering, and disfigured, which is the suffering image on the veil of Veronica and on the shroud. How can we not see this as a prophecy for the church of our day? 
The crisis of faith that has stricken the church since the 1960s is one that has disfigured the face of Catholicism. The holy sacrifice of the Mass has been disfigured. Theology has been disfigured. Catholic religious instruction for both adults and children has been disfigured. Seminary formation is disfigured. Convents and religious life are disfigured. The interiors of our churches have been disfigured. Even the Catholic teaching concerning the sacrament of marriage is being disfigured. And I would add that Our Lady of Good Success, again, 400 years ago, speaking to Mother, uh, uh, Mother Mariana de Jesus, uh, that she said to her that all the sacraments would be profaned. And she talked especially about um, our Lord and Holy Eucharist and also the sacrament of matrimony and how the holy orders would be ridiculed and oppressed and despised. Our Lord uh, told Mother Maria Pierina, who's the, uh, the visionary for the devotion to the holy face uh, of Jesus on the Shroud of Turin, uh, he said, I desire that my face, which reflects the deep anguish of my soul and the sorrow and love of my heart, be more honored. He who contemplates me consoles me. Each time my face is contemplated, I will pour my love into hearts, and through my holy face many souls will be saved. The church teaches us, the perennial magisterium, the tradition of the church teaches us, salus animarum suprema lex, the salvation of souls is the supreme law. Unfortunately, there are many spheres in the Catholic Church today where salvation of souls doesn't even seem to be on the radar, much less the primary concern. So this devotion, devotion to the holy face of Jesus, whether it's the devotion of the holy face of Veronica's veil or the Shroud of Turin, um, it gives to simple individual believers an, a way to console our Lord and to help save souls. Blessed Pius IX was very devoted. He, he was very excited and a vigorous promoter of this devotion of the, uh, of the holy face of Jesus, of the veil of Veronica. And he said that reparation is the work that is destined to save society. See, not just the church, but society itself. And he says, uh, or he composed a number of prayers, but this short offering I'll share with you. Eternal Father, we offer thee the adorable face of thy well-beloved Son for the honor and glory of thy name and for the salvation of all men. Amen. And that's no nonsense. Hey, if you're interested in Devotion to the Holy Face, um, at your local bookstore or online, you can get a booklet called Devotion to the Holy Face, put out by Tan, and it's got uh, some history of the, the first devotion and uh, also a whole lot of uh, prayers and invocations and litany to the Holy Face well worth your investment. Until next time, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.